everybody thanks for joining us for another episode of food chain presented by perfy today's guest we've got matt perry the founder of the good crisp company matt thank you for joining us thank you for having me i'm excited to jump in here and talk about um you first and foremost and your story and how you got to the beginning of the good crisp company yeah definitely well back in australia as you can hear from my my accent i'm originally from australia been in the u.s here now for nearly four years but originally Started the Good Chris Company in Australia. My background was I had a company that imported and sold brands into Australia and helped launch brands and things like that. So I've had experience in CPG and, and been in the industry for a long time. So I knew, knew I wanted to start some kind of food company and, and snack company specifically, but was just waiting for the right idea and, and the right inspiration. And that came as I started to work a bit more into, into canister chips and then just saw that there was a huge opportunity in, in this this market. I didn't like giving you know Pringles to my kids. We had stopped eating it. I was on a gluten free diet, but you know loved that form and, and that product and thought there was a real opportunity to innovate above and, and to become a better version of, of that. And so one thing led to another. I was able to connect with a fantastic manufacturer that made the product, and and so that that helped kick it into life. Amazing. And how did that work? Did you start originally in Australia? Because I remember you, I've seen your brand around for a few years now in, in the States. Did you initially launch in Australia? We did, yes. Yeah. So I've been doing this for probably about eight years now. So we, we launched in Australia and it did okay, but Australia's got a lot smaller population, a lot of sort of already a lot of healthier snack options. So we just got more and more interest out of the US market, more retailers and and parents sort of messaging us and asking us when we're available. So I decided to come across to to Expo West one year out in Anaheim and and to exhibit our products and just put it on the table and see if there was interest. Um, And we just got so much positive feedback from from the industry on on both the taste and the opportunity we were trying to do. So that convinced me to, to launch. We started off in 30 Whole Foods in Northern California. That was about five years ago now. And the business just continued to grow and, and grow really organically, which was important. I've, I've worked on a number of brands where you have to, you know, you really have to push the marketing hard and spend a lot of time and really convince people to buy it. But here, people just got it straight away and retailers were ringing us and asking us to put it in. So I knew that, you know, this was a real opportunity. So we, we pivoted, if you will, and, and focused more on the US. And then, as I said, four years ago, almost three and a half years ago, I moved here with my family to Boulder to really just focus on, on the US market. I think you've done a really good job with the product. And I say that because, and I think a lot of the traction you had is because we're so familiar with Pringles in America. And, you know, people are, I think they even had a campaign, once you pop, you can't stop. And the whole duck chip thing where you put them in your mouth. It's amazing for me when I see food and beverage companies, they go with something that's familiar to the general consumer, but they make it in such a better way with yours, none of the top allergens, you know, no GMO, gluten-free, like these sorts of things. And you're organic too, right? You're non-GMO. We're not, we're not organic, but we are a verified non-GMO and natural flavor. Amazing. Yeah. Having those RTBs or reasons to believe in a new type of Pringle is so huge and excites me so much because I consume your products and I, I literally can't tell the difference. And, and where I'm getting at is I feel like success often depends upon how, if you're going to make a product based off of something that already exists where there's familiarity and you do it in your own better for you, healthier, different way, there's so much traction in that because there's no real drop-off from a Pringle to your chips. 
we actually go even further. So we used to talk a lot about being, yeah, the better for you Pringle or the better for you canister chip. And now, particularly as we move more into conventional, we just talk about being a better Pringle. Our products beats Pringles in blind taste testing. We're, we're a better product, better quality ingredients, better taste. But, you know, so it's beyond that as well. I mean, to, to your point, it was it used to be that you would sort of have to sacrifice, you know, well, it, it's, it's not, doesn't taste as good, but it's healthier for me or whatever. We mm. want to be at the forefront of, of a new generation of snacking, which is there should be no compromise. There should be, as you say, no drop off. You should be able to actually, this tastes better. It's better quality. It's, it's better for me. Why wouldn't I buy this product? And so that's a, a really important focus for us. And, and particularly for me, I don't want to, I don't want to niche down too much and be well. Yeah. We're the you know we're the keto of Pringles or something like that. Not there's anything wrong with with that. So different, mm-hmm. but but I really want to be broad and mainstream. And how do I how do I have just you know everyday Americans just feeling better about their snacks is really what we focus on. So in that case, I need to keep it as broad and as tasty and as as any friction as possible. Sorry, remove any friction as possible so that it's easy to switch over to us. Yeah, easy to remove that friction when it tastes amazing, man. Good stuff. Tell me more about when you first came over to the United States with the Good Chris Company and launched into the 30 NorCal Whole Foods. What was it like thereafter? Like once you launch in, you're probably seeing you know, good velocities. What was your evolution of this company and like one of those key moments that you, you'll always remember? It was definitely like you know drinking from a fire hose as, as the uh, as the saying goes in the sense that it just really started to take i mean that opened up a you know a unfi dc for us we had a good broker that started to open more and you know originally i was like oh we're just going to focus on california i mean california is bigger than the australian economy there's more people like and you know just just do this and and we started to do that and then you know a couple of weeks later wegman's calls and says matt we want to put your product into all of your stores and so we had to make this decision are we going to sort of turn down these opportunities and just grow here or or are we going to you know actually make a, a serious go of this and so you know, I decided just given that we had a good head start, there wasn't a lot of competition. I was worried that people would come out behind me. They would see what I was doing and, and try and sort of copy it. Like, then I thought, look, let, let's just go go everywhere and do this quickly. And so we made a conscious choice to, to do that and to go national really quickly. There was some good and bad things about that. We definitely stretched ourselves really thin in some places, but, you know, it really helped to, to sort of accelerate the brand. So we were opening DCs and filling those up, you know, really, really quickly. And, and the first couple of years was was just a blur of, of, of getting distribution out there. Do the retailers give you a little bit of grace when it comes to rolling out nationally, even though, you know, Wegmans is a, a regional, you know, taking them on is significant amount of stores they give you a little bit of grace to ramp up and get your production going so you can fulfill those orders or were they like strict about it pretty strict and as well we didn't want to sort of miss opportunity you know what it's like i mean Mm -hmm. a lot of these guys if you miss a reset date it's it's 12 months later before you're you're able to get in and so we were trying to do as much as we can we're investing you know heavily it meant that we had to raise funds really early on in our company as, as well to help with that but you know as I say, it's not a, not always the right path for everyone, but it's one that we chose and, and we're pretty pretty happy to do it. But yeah, it was just very, very capital intensive and, and just everything we did went into inventory and just to get product out there. And, and thankfully, we have a product that we don't have to spend a huge amount of marketing and time on educating people. We can put it on shelf, particularly in a natural store where the only canister chip in the store, pretty self-obvious. So people, you know, our turns were relatively good to start with. You know, they've obviously got a lot, lot better as we've worked on it. But to start with, they were good and we didn't have to, you know, support with demos and things like that. That start with and that helped us to be able to use that cash to, to continue to grow. 
I never really thought about that. It's once you see a canister chip, you kind of know what's going on in there, you know, with beverage and what I'm doing, a 12 ounce can can have anything in there for the most part, you know? So that's a pretty cool, you know, merchandising kind of trick there is like, once you see that canister, you you know, it's going to be like a Pringle. Yeah. And it just became up to, we probably like, like packaging then becomes really important. And when we launched, we had different packaging to now and we changed it probably two years ago and that really helped accelerate our business as well. And so that was a real learning for us as well that yes, it's obvious like what we are, but that can be read either way. So our packaging was actually, I was really obsessed, you know, going back to your earlier points around how do we show that we're a better Pringle, that we're healthier, that we're all these things. And so our packaging was really focused on the healthy side and I missed out on the fun and and taste side of things. And so once I got here and started to chat to consumers more, we realized that yes, people were noticing us. Yes, they knew what we were, but it didn't mean that they picked us up because they thought, oh, that's that's either a private label or that looks healthy, it probably doesn't taste good, I'll just stick with what I've got. So we reinvented our packaging fairly drastically to, to sort of stand out more, to look more appetizing and to focus on on the, the taste and fun side. And that's really then helped accelerate our, our sales as well. Did you always have the real food photography on the canister or did you transition into that uh, we did but it was a lot smaller than that mm. so we made that a bit more of a, a focus there of it just to sort of show that that's inside because then and then sort of we put in our call to actions about being healthy and just brighter colors and more fun and the sun and the, the graphics there as well has helped i've got a, a wild card question for you and I'll, I'll go into why i ask it soon after you answer but would you say that you're a snacking company for adults that children just happen to love or a snacking company for children that adults just happen to love it's one we think about a lot. We choose the latter. We're a snack a company for, for kids that, that adults like. Reason being, when we looked at the data as well, canister chips are mainly consumed by five to ten year olds are the largest consumers. And then people they kids tend to grow up, move on to Doritos and then move out of it, and then adults don't sort of go back to it too often. So it became low, lower hanging fruit for us to attack those millennial parents that were, that were looking for the that currently buying these kind of snacks that weren't satisfied and would switch over so that's definitely a key as i say low-hanging fruit but we really do see ourselves as a broad stream so we do talk more about you know say helping everyday americans we think there is a place to, to sort of an extended build the category and build back users and more of those adults back into the category and that's sort of something we do focus on but that's a secondary part of what we do but the use case, that's more from a marketing answer, from a use case, definitely adults do like our product as well. That's great. An old uh, founder that I, I used to work with very closely had a, a snacking company where it was geared towards the, the adults, but kids absolutely loved it. And that was a great unlock for him. Although the marketing was more focused, so it's kind of the, the opposite answer, but I see it worked in both cases. And for me, I'm definitely reaching to the older, like, you know, 24 to, to 44 demographic. And these folks, if they have kids, obviously kids love drinking soda. So for me, it's yep. more of geared towards the adult, but kids just happen to love it. And it's, it's not terrible for, for kids, you know, under 18 to have L-theanine or, uh, you know, turmeric or ashwagandha. So it worked out for me. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, you, you can really paint yourself into niches and, and say, well, we're only just for 18 to you know 20 year old Gen yeah. Z's or whatever. When actually, oh, well, like to your point, everyone drinks soda, everyone likes bubbles, everyone gets benefits from that. I think 
The challenge is, is, you know, particularly in the early days, we don't have the, the cash and the resources to focus on all of those from a marketing perspective. So niching down does help, but we just have to be careful that we're reminding ourselves this is a niche for marketing purposes. It's not a niche for our, our company and our brand that we actually are relevant to all of these people as well. Um, and so not, not going to one way or, or another sort of when it comes to broader positioning. So what, what I'm doing with Perfect, we just got ketogenic certified. And for me, I'm not niching down that that deep. It's not a keto soda. It's not a, a diabetic friendly soda. But my goal with marketing was to build the trust with those folks. And when it doesn't raise your blood sugar, or one quote that we have is that it doesn't raise your blood sugar, or it raises my blood sugar just the way water does, which is not at all. Yeah, And that, that was huge for me because year one for me is all about building trust metabolically. And I, I think it has greater appeal, but I have to get to that very center of the target, even maybe too too small of a target to build the trust and then build out from there. And that's at least I'm, I'm taking it right now. Yeah, no, I agree. And we did the same thing with gluten-free as well and, and still do. Like our product is gluten-free, when, but we're not an exclusively you know gluten-free customer. But Pringles has flour and a lot of canister chips put flour and stuff like that in it. So we knew that that was a really core demographic that's easy to reach, that, that's vocal, that's passionate. There's a pain point here. They, they can't have Pringles. And so they're open to us. And so that was a real, you know, once again, using that term low-hanging fruit for us to really tap into. And we continue to do that, even though, to your point, we're, we're not a gluten-free snack exclusively, but there's a customer base that we're really relevant to. I've got a question for you. Now, why is it, do you think, that certain bigger brands, and we've been using the word the brand Pringles for this. Why is it, do you think that they don't want to make their product gluten-free or remove the top eight allergens or remove the flowers or any of a number of things to make the product a little bit more sound and sustainable for humans? Yeah, and I can't talk to a, to a lot of sort of brands, but to, but to use the example we've been talking about, I mean, these guys, to be honest, they don't need to. You know, they're market dominant. They're the number one in the category. They're still growing at, at double digit or around the world. They have a very core customer base. You know, whilst we are important, there's still millions and millions of Americans that, that, that don't care. They just want this product. They're happy to pay a cheap price for it. And, and that's who they cater to. So mm-hmm. there's, there's elements of, of that with a lot of these legacy brands. Now, some categories aren't like snacking. Some is, is like, you know, for you know, for, for your example, soda or or no, so there's another one where it's growing where they don't necessarily need to do those things. Or there's other brands like cereal, which had a category is dying and, and going backwards, although COVID's helped a little bit. And so they're a little bit more open to trying different things and, and doing things. But a lot of these legacy brands are, are you know they're growing at three, four percent. They're huge cash cows for their parent companies. And so it's not worth the hassle to go after two or three percent of the market. It's funny you mentioned cereal, and I, I always bring up one of our clients on my marketing agency side. One of our clients is, is Magic Spoon, and seeing what they've done to that category is so remarkable because they pretty much flipped it on its head. That the the word disruption isn't used as much anymore because it got kind of watered down. Yep. But if there is a brand sitting next to the definition of disruption in the dictionary, I feel like what they've done is just it's great. Like there's a lot of copycats now, but if you think yeah. about it from a, are we doing this to truly support people's health? It's kind of like, they're, they're more like allies the way I view. I'm not part of their team. We still work with them, but it's just an interesting yeah. thing to see. Yeah, and, and you're at the copycats. There is a lot of that. I mean, a lot of that's come from other smaller brands, which is interesting, but also as well, some of those larger guys are getting into it now as well. And now they're a bit more ready to look at some of that stuff because, because they're more desperate in their overall business. So yeah, it's a really interesting category. 
Yeah, Post just launched their own version of it, and yeah. it's it's like cookie cutter. Uh, it looks looks yeah. exactly the same, without poo-pooing on too many big food brands. Um, I saw that on your site that you're supporting the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. How did you decide on that, and how is that going? Yeah, so that's definitely something. Like we we didn't want to just be oh let's you know as a company we need to give back. Let's you know whatever <laughs> put put something in there. I don't want to say anything uh, because but you know you know what I mean. Brands are just doing it because they feel like they need to or or whatever. But this one for us is is really personal and really important, and it's actually something that I wanted to, to sort of do even before the company to some degree. Um, but my my youngest daughter when she was ten weeks old was diagnosed with really really aggressive um, leukemia. And so we spent a couple of years in hospital dealing with that as a family and and thankfully she's now seven and, and doing really well and, and got through oh, the yeah. worst of that. But, you know, it was something that obviously really affected us and and, and sort of we know affects other families and, and things. So we wanted to use our company as well as what we do personally, but but use our company as a vehicle to be able to to generate some some donation and awareness for, for the amazing work that they're doing. So that that's where that comes from. That's epic, man. And I love how you have a minimum too, where, you know, you're, you're guaranteeing that you're going to donate X amount per year or whatever that looks like for you. Yeah, no, it's important. I mean, it, it's what it's there for. I mean, essentially, we're, as I said, we're, we're using the company to, to grow awareness and, and grow funds, which is sort of, you know, the opposite, not the opposite way around where we're using leukemia to grow our company. So, yeah. um, you know, we want to make sure that that is actually working. We're able to, to put back to those guys. There's a lot of data out there on, on brand with brands that you know, support certain causes. And I think it's huge, but there's oftentimes brands that are just doing it for the sake of doing it. And I've got a similar, you know, meaningful, at least to me, it's like my why, but I'm not a big fan when someone just slaps like 1% for the planet on there just because they have to, or it partners with something just because they have to, because they don't want to get, you know, frowned upon or something like that. For me, it was important to start Perfy and have it be positioned as a brain health soda because the reason I started is I, I lost my my best friend to an accidental overdose from fentanyl. Yeah. My old roommate took his life in January of 2020, the pandemic hit. And between all of that time, I lost a dozen more friends. And for me, I was, I'm not a big prescription taker. I don't even take Tylenol. When I'm sick, I kind of like try to do all of the soups and stuff. And for me, I, I just needed to take nootropics and adaptogens to try to find a way to mellow things out because it was such a significant trauma where, you know, like I hope that when we support these causes that help the families of those that were lost or help people before they decide to make permanent decisions, you know, where it's one of my ultimate goals is to support those, you know? Yeah, definitely. No, I think that's having, having that why. And, you know, I think the trouble as well is, is consumers nowadays are very skeptical and, and very wise. And so even if, you know, because, oh, they're just, you know, maybe there is a reason why they're putting on 1% for the planet or something like that, but, but unless it looks like there's a connection and, and an authenticity there or you're sharing the other side of, of the story and those things. I think, you know, consumers are just skeptical about those things and, and they're sort of until proven otherwise, they just assume brands are guilty of greenwashing or any of those sort of things like that. So it's definitely an important part of if you're going to do that, then you need to have the second part of that, which is making sure you're telling the other side of the story and explaining why it connects in and, and why we're doing this. 100%. One question I have is, what were one of the like biggest challenges that you faced early on that you think might help other founders in if they're starting up their company or if they're listening to this to think about you know how they can think about starting their company? What is one of those challenges that you went through that you think several people have faced? I think the real the, the biggest like on a macro level challenge that that brands and companies go through is really finding it and, and to, 
I don't like borrowing this term from the tech world, but but product market fit essentially. Yeah. What, what what's the reason for you being there? Like the world doesn't need another snack company, <laughs> you know. Like there's enough snacks out there, like that. that but but I found a, a niche that that works. So same same with what you guys are doing there with Perfy. So finding what are we actually doing? How am I bringing value? To this yeah sure i can make a great cookie recipe at home that everyone says tastes really good but what actually is different what, what's beneficial why are people going to buy this is this actually going to work how, how can i do it? what am i positioning what's my competition spending huge amounts of time around the, the customer and obsessing about them and the why they would pick it up i think just really makes everything else so much easier in in what you're doing so that that for me on a, on a macro level is really important Agreed. I think people should understand that why before just starting something. Because to be honest, unless you're in it for the long haul, it should just be a, a money grab. You know, if it's if there's an actual reason for this product to exist and an actual yeah. benefit and it solves an actual problem, go for it. And something you know, I was asked that recently. What would you tell people that want to start up their company? And I was like, only do it if you will live and breathe this thing for years and years to come. I, I think that folks should start with that. You know, there's people say, I want to start my business because I wanted to work from home or work less or make money or, as you know, none of those things. It's all the complete opposite. (laughs) You work more, you you travel more, you get less money. So, yeah, it needs to be a strong, strong commitment to what you're doing. On the flip side of the last question, what are some, I don't know, key notes that you could provide for other startup founders, things that they should watch out for, not necessarily mistakes or like learning in a bad way, but what are some, you know, pieces of advice that you can give? Yeah, I think going back to what we did and I hinted at it earlier sort of around, you know, we grew quickly and there's probably places we shouldn't have gone into early on that came back to bite us a bit more where we didn't support it and so our turns and our numbers weren't good and they raised questions about, you know, why aren't you selling in this one retailer? Forget about the 20 that we're doing amazing in, you know, investors and people only want to focus on the one chain that we're not doing well in. And so, you know, I think, making sure I'm being strategic about that, about careful about growth. And, and it, it ties into the first part as well because you need to spend time, you know, picking off handfuls of stores or D2C or however you do it. But test your market, get your turns right, learn how to do it, make your mistakes on five, 600 stores and then scale up. Don't, you know, make your mistake on on a 1,000 stores and have to do that. I mean, we, we, you know, to some degree learned that a little bit with our packaging as well. You know, when we had to make our change, if we had sort of done it earlier, it probably would have been better. So you can't get everything right, obviously, and there's that balance between, you know, perfect is the enemy of, of done, but, you know, making sure that you're getting out there, but just sort of learning and, and that on smaller scale and then staying scale up, I think, is, is an important and helps you know, be less costly mistakes. I could use that advice. When I first launched, we went from a formula to liquid in cans in eight months. And we were very proud of the formulas and we were pretty lucky to do that. And even the trial run went well. But what I what I rushed past was the label. And I didn't, I wasn't as diligent enough to get the printouts and you know, mark them up and all of that. And you know, I paid the price. But what I found from that is that patience is key. And having those learnings and listen to how the customer talks about the product and then being able to apply them really quickly for the next run. I mean, I don't know if I would change that because I, there was no way to get this invaluable insight 
prior to launching. So, but, I mean, the difference there is, I mean, I assuming you didn't launch into four thousand Walmart, correct, so, so you were able to quickly adapt and change and, and do that and, and get those learnings. And you know, we're what five years in, and this is probably our fourth <laughs> packaging change. You know, and we're we're doing another one, not not drastic, but just as you learn things or hear things, you, you change and adapt. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's important to keep that sort of flexibility definitely as as well because it's definitely a learning business. What's next for the Good Chris Company? I know that you're not just a canister chip company. You have your your puffs as well. You don't have to divulge anything that's that you don't want to, but what, what do you got next on the horizon? For us, it's really that they're the two core focuses. You know, we're we're not a we're not a platform brand. We we sort of not looking to to be out there in all sort of areas. We're just very specific around how can we provide you know guilt free snacks in canisters to, to people. So we think there's a real opportunity in what we're doing in the potato chip, and then with the cheese balls, which is also in our same category, same customers from there. So there are two focus for the product. Then we're just bringing innovation around that, whether that's flavors. We have some new flavors coming, some different ideas we're doing around that as well. But really those two areas and then just going deeper with where we're at and continuing to sort of work with our retail partners is sort of our focus. I'm going to take a step back. There's there's one question I forgot to ask when you were talking about the watch outs for people who are looking to start their own companies. When you say that you don't want, you didn't use the word over-index, but basically if you move too fast and certain retailers aren't moving the way some of the good ones are, are you specifically talking about the investment made for like trade spend and all of the different tools that, and levers you can pull to support those velocities? That's definitely one. I think there's a couple of, a couple of different things. I think we've also learned now of going to a retailer, we need to have you know, a minimum of, of three SKUs and a certain amount of facings and things like that. A couple, we just got, you know, one one flavor in or something. And so we were lost on shelf. No one would ever see us. We were placed in a bad set in the store. So it was sort of doomed to fail from, from the start. So we learned now that, yeah, making sure we've got enough facings that we can be seen, that we have a support program, that we have good trade in there. For us, snacks are very impulse driven. So moving where we can away from EDLC and instead having sort of, you know, good, strong trade promotions and catalogs and support is is important as well to make sure that people see us and pick us up and try us because we know when they try us, they'll keep coming back and, and buying us. But if they never see us or never pick us up, um, we can't get those turns. So, yeah, there's definitely some things around that being really conscious. Everyone says this, but it's true. You know, getting on shelf is, is just is the easy part to some degree. Getting off shelf consistently is really where the challenge is. I hear that. It's uh, funny because you've got such a great product. I, I always say I need to get cans and hands. For you, yeah. you can say you, you need to get canisters and hands. Yeah. It plays the same way. All right, Matt. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Where can we find you online, both yourself and your and your brand? Yeah, so a website, goodchriscompany.com um, is where everything is there. Myself on LinkedIn as, as Matthew Parry or uh, Twitter as Matt Goodcrisp, I think it is. So yeah, two parts there. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. I had a pleasure chatting with you. Likewise, mate. Thank you very much.